trust that you do if you can open with me to Luke chapter 2 Luke chapter 2 and this morning we we're going to begin or we are beginning a six-part series where we are going to be dissecting the message that the angel gave to the shepherds that first Christmas night so um, Luke 2 8 through 14 we're going to be in this passage the next six times we come together and we're going to be impact or excuse me dissecting the following phrases fear not looking at that today Good news next week, great joy for all people. Then on Christmas Eve, a Savior. And then the last Sunday together, we're going to be dissecting the phrase, Christ the Lord. And I love this picture because angels pop up all over the Christmas story. So we're looking at this sermon series called Messengers because angels pop up all over the Christmas story. An angel told Mary that she, a virgin, was going to give birth to Jesus. An angel told Joseph to call his name Jesus. An angel warned Mary and Joseph to flee to Egypt. An angel told them when it was safe to return to Israel. And in our text this morning, an angel and then an army of angels suddenly appear um, to shepherds announcing the birth of Christ and then rejoicing in the birth of Christ. And if there's one thing that angels did throughout Scripture, they frightened people. So angels frightened people all throughout Scripture. And when angels show up in the Christmas story, the first thing they have to say is, Fear not. Or don't be afraid. Because obviously there was a lot for people to be fearful of. In fact, think of it like this. Angels are apparently more than just chubby babies floating on clouds playing harps. So apparently they're way more than that. Our culture's modern, marketed version of angels do not closely resemble what we see in Scripture at all. In fact, if we had what Scripture shows us or reveals to us about angels, if we had those at the top of our Christmas tree, um, our Christmas tree would take on a whole nother meaning. They wouldn't be cute or awesome. They would be terrifying. And we would think, what are we celebrating? What are we doing? And that's the picture. Angels are terrifying creatures, get this, because they reflect the glory of God. They are so frightening that they have to say to people they come in contact with, don't be afraid. And most of us, I would say most of us probably have not encountered angels this past week. Maybe you have, but most of us haven't. But here's what I do know. Most all of us have encountered things that we fear this past week. We've, had, we've encountered things that we fear, things that are fearful to us this past week. And here's why the angels appearing to the shepherds is so important to us. Because while Christmas time is joyful for some people, all is calm and all is bright. Others are reminded how disappointing life can be. Others are discouraged. Others are walking through depression during this time of season. And thankfully for all of us, here comes the shepherds, which is meant to give all of us hope. What we're about to read um, and as we're about to see, the shepherds, their first response in seeing the angel, it says that they were filled with great fear. So not just fear, but great fear. And I think that's something that we're all familiar with. We all know something about fear. There's so much in all of our lives that we end up fearing. And here's what we know, that fear can overwhelm our senses. It distorts our thinking. It can kidnap our desires it captures our thoughts to where we spend more time worrying than trusting 
Fear can cause us to make bad decisions in the short term, and it can cause us to fail to make good decisions in the long run. Fear can cause us to forget what we know, and it causes us to lose sight of who we are. Fear can cause us to distrust people that we have every reason to trust. It can cause us to be demanding when we should be serving. And the worst part, fear can make God look small and our circumstances loom large. Fear can make us seek from people what we can only get from the Lord. Fear oftentimes is the soil of our deepest questions and our deepest doubts. They rise up through our fears. So in light of the landscape that we all live in where we are tempted to be fearful and we live in the midst of fears, I want us to dive into Luke 2 today. And I want us to bring God and His Word into our fearfulness. And over the next six messages, we're going to unpack these different sayings throughout um, this one specific text. So we're going to read this over and over and over again. And I pray over the next six weeks, if nothing more, then God, God will just put that word, this word, in our hearts in a fresh and a new way. So if you can stand, if you're able, as we honor God's word, you have your Bibles, it's great. We encourage you to do that so you see we're not making this up. We also have the verses on the screen as well. But beginning at verse 8, in, in the same region there were shepherds, out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we're not going to come before you and act like, God, there aren't things in our lives that we fear. Because the reality is, Lord, there are fearful things in this world. And there are fearful things in our lives. And today we want to look at those, Lord, with a, a fresh lens, God, through your word. And we pray, God, that as we focus on you, you would help us to see our fears expelled. As you are magnified, as you become greater. Lord, just speak to us by your word, through your spirit. Glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. So I want you to think about this. Do you know what the most frequent command in the Bible is? You know, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there are 613 commands. So there are 365 negative commands in the Old Testament. And by negative, I don't mean bad. I mean, don't do this. And there are 248 positive commands, so do this. So you have 613 thou shalt and thou shalt nots um, throughout the Old Testament. And when you think about and think through the do's and don'ts of the Bible, I'm guessing more than 
A few of them come to your mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not murder. Love your enemies. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of these are certainly biblical commands and should be applied to every single one of our lives. But surprisingly, none of these are the most frequent command in the Bible. The command that's given again and again by God, by angels, by Jesus, by prophets and apostles is do not be afraid. Think about this. The most frequent command given in Scripture is do not be afraid. So when we see fear not in Scripture, understand this. It's not just a, a suggestion for us in the midst of the impossible. It is a command from God with whom in Him nothing is impossible. So it's a command given to us. Just about every single day, I talk to people who are, and, and if it's not literal people, I talk to myself, and I'm among those people. Talk to people who are afraid and anxious, maybe through different fears. Maybe it's fears of unmet expectations. Maybe a fear of rejection. Maybe it's finances and job security. Maybe it's obstacles of life, failures, relationships, fear of losing a loved one. Or fear that they have walking through a disease, walking through pain, or thinking about their own death. And regardless of our fears, we all long for more of God's peace in the midst of our daily stresses, even if we know it or not. That is what we are longing for. And several years ago, an encouraging teaching began to make its way around the church circuit. And you have probably heard um, this teaching. The teaching is that the command, fear not, appears in the Bible 365 times. So it said it appears once for every day of the year. A daily reminder from God for us to live fearless lives. Think about that. What a thought that there is not a day on our calendar except for leap year. Too bad for that one. Where we don't have God's word telling us not to fear. And while that's a great and amazing thought, and so many pastors have used it, in fact, as I was listening to some messages on this scripture, a pastor that I listened to said the same thing. Unfortunately, get this, it's not true. It's not true. It's not a true thought. Yes, the word fear appears 500 times in the Bible, but the command, fear not, or do not be afraid, or do not fear, only appears a little over 100 times in the Bible. And I pray that that doesn't discourage you wondering what you're supposed to do the other 265 days. Like, I got 100 days of fear knots, but what am I supposed to do the other days? I pray that we're at a point in our Christian lives where God doesn't have to tell us something 365 times for us to believe it. I pray we're at that place. Consider this. When God said, let there be light, he didn't have to say it 365 times. God doesn't have to say it every day. He said it once and it was enough. In fact, when God told the angels to fear not, they were, pardon me, they were stupid enough to believe it, and it was enough for them. They go, okay, well, we won't fear. We'll do what you say. And they did it, and it was enough. One time should be enough for us. 
So what that means for us, what that means for you, what that means for me is regardless of the day, regardless of the difficulties or disappointments, even regardless of the task that God places before us, our command is clear. Do not be afraid. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to now unpack three truths concerning fear. Why it exists and how we can see it expelled from our lives. So first truth is this. Fear exists because we are inferior to God. Fear exists because we are inferior to God. And we're going to fly through this one real quick, but I think it's important for us to understand and even important for us to confess that all of our fears exist because we are inferior to God. So if we're talking about a good fear, which is a holy fear of God that the Bible commands us to have, so the Bible tells us to fear God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And it, it begins, that fear of God begins with us understanding who God is and understanding who we are, which is we are inferior to this God, and fearing Him is a good thing. Now, there's a, I had an individual in our church that every time I would say fear God, he used to come up to me and say, I don't fear God. Stop saying it. And I was like, well, you should. One day you might. Um, the picture is, I get it. Listen, we shouldn't be scared of God. God is not the boogeyman behind every um, corner just waiting to go boo. And we go, ah, that's not what we're saying. The fear that we're talking about is a holy reverence or a holy awe of understanding who he is is and once we see who he is we never forget who he is you know we are such a messed up society and that we think that a you know an encounter with god is supposed to be a cool thing as if i think about isaiah 6 isaiah encountered god on his throne high and lifted up and guess what isaiah didn't do i'm, I'm gonna bring it into our day isaiah didn't go wow and Isaiah didn't break out his phone and take a selfie of him and Jesus and put it on his Facebook or Instagram page going, eat your heart out, everybody else. I got this encounter with God. Ha! That's, not what, that's what we think we would do. But that's not what he did. Instead, he fell down and said, woe is me. Meaning he's saying, I'm about to die because I'm in the presence of a holy God and I'm an unholy being and I am unraveling in his presence. This is the picture of what's going on in the presence of God. And this is what we have to understand. When we understand who God is and who we are, it will bring in us or it will put in us a rightful fear of who He is. But if we're talking about a worldly fear, so think about that. We're talking about worldly fears now and being faced with something that is absolutely bigger or greater than our ability to even handle. Those things, of course, those kind of fears are loud. They're demanding. Even though we know they're irrational, they still control us. Think about that. We all have fears that we know they're irrational fears, and yet they still control us. We're like, I shouldn't even have this fear, but if something happens, here it comes. And we, nothing we can do about it. It's hard to even argue with those fears because they're so intense and they're they're always speaking over us. I think of what Moses said in Deuteronomy 31. It's on the screen. So Moses was 120 years old. He was about to die, and he's addressing the people of Israel. And he says to them, Do not fear 
or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. So Moses was talking to a group of people and he says, guys, you have a lot of things around you that you could fear. The enemies all around you are fearful enemies. They're bigger, they're greater, they're smarter. They've done war a little bit longer. They've done all these things. They're, and he's saying, it's easy for you to focus on those things. But instead, focus on the fact that God is with you. See, worldly fears only see in part. They see that we might lose something dear to us. Or they see um, potential for some form of loss. And it magnifies that in a greater sense than we could ever imagine. But here's what unhealthy fears don't see. Unhealthy fears don't see the presence of God. And unhealthy fears don't hear the promises of God. Instead, unhealthy fears only see the problem and they only speak lies. And this is a picture of what's happening in many of our lives even today. We're not hearing the promises of God. We're not seeing the presence of God because all we can see is the fear of what is before us. I think of one of the greatest promises concerning fear that God gives. It's Isaiah 41.10. Again, it's, it's right there on the screen where God says this, Fear not. For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Think of it like this. Because God is God, guess what? He fears nothing. Our God fears nothing. Now there's days in my life where I fear everything. There's days in my life where I even fear my shadow, and yet God fears nothing. Nothing. And not only are we inferior to him, every fearful thing in our lives is inferior to him. Every fearful thing in your life in this moment or will be in your life tomorrow or next week or next year is inferior to him. So fear exists because we are inferior to God. And he and other things are greater than us. But then the second truth is this. Fear exists because we are separated from God. So as I began this study, um, I had in my mind kind of where I thought we were going in this. And then as I got into it, God said, no, you're going you're gonna to stick with the text here. So we're going to kind of go where the text takes us. So think about verses 8 through 10 again. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, because that's what shepherds do. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear, which is not what shepherds do. Shepherds are used to standing um, guard over their sheep against all kind of wild animals, and shepherds are not known to be fearful. Yet in this moment, they are filled with great fear. And the angel, of course, says, fear not. And let me just give you a little context here. Back in the time when Jesus lived, whenever a family would give birth to a child, if they had financial means, they would hire a herald to announce the birth of their child. It's kind of like the um, announcements, birth announcements that we do today. And we take the pictures and send them out to everybody, let them know, if, in case you didn't know, I, we had a baby. Um, just so you could get on the scene. So they would send out um, someone into the city to, to herald this Announcement, And it was a, an amazing celebration of covenant blessings and also family blessings that God had poured on them. And this is what God does here. He is announcing the birth of his son. So he sends an angel out to be the good news herald. 
And yet the angel finds itself sharing the good news in a field with a bunch of shepherds. Now, I know this doesn't mess with our minds the way it should, but if the Son of God were born on earth, who do you think um, God should choose to announce that news to? Now, logically, we would think probably the royalty should hear about this. Probably the religious elite should hear about this. And if some of you are thinking right now, well, it's, it's shepherds because that's what's in my nativity scene, so duh. And I mean, and, and that's good enough for you. I, I get that. But have you ever considered why Luke chapter 2, verse 8 does not read? Now, there were in the same region scribes and Pharisees keeping watch over their scrolls and their religious rituals by night. Or why it doesn't say there was in the same region kings and princes who were watching at their palace by night. God chose to reveal the birth of the Savior of the world to simple shepherds. And that should blow our minds for a few different reasons. First of all, shepherds were considered the lowest class in Jewish society. They were on the lowest rung of the economic level. They had no formal education. It was entirely possible that these shepherds who heard the angel's message that night were illiterate. They were looked down upon. Secondly, shepherds were basically homeless people. They were nomads, get this, who had more in common with the sheep that they watched than with other people. They could relate, they could relate more to sheep than they could to other people because they were nomads. Third, because shepherds would use fields often that were not their own, they were regarded as thieves. And their testimony was not even admissible in court. This is how they were looked upon by those around them. And then fourth, because they had to work seven days a week and couldn't take the Sabbath off to go to the temple, they were considered to be spiritual outcasts. The only other people um, in that day that was um, viewed to be lower than shepherds were lepers who had to be outside the camp, who had to announce their uncleanness to anyone who got near to them. Yet that night in Bethlehem, outside of Joseph and Mary, the only people on the earth that knew that Christ had come were the shepherds. And the question hopefully rises up in us, why in the world would God choose them? And the answer is simple. It was to demonstrate from its inception that the nature of the gospel declares this. There is no one too broken. There is no one too poor. There is no one too insignificant for the kingdom of God. That was the message from the beginning. In fact, God prefers the poor, the foolish, the broken. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29. God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose shepherds to show that the gospel is for the simple and not for the sophisticated. One theologian put it this way, God put his cookies on the bottom shelf. And in case that doesn't make any sense to you, let me, let me go on. Because of that, because God puts his cookies on the bottom shelf, the sophisticated, the scholarly, and the prideful often miss it. They're, they're too busy looking too high, and they refuse to stoop to the bottom. 
and they miss what God offers freely. If it were the other way, then we could boast. If we were looking and all of a sudden it, it was hidden and we found that we could boast that we did something. Let me tell you two things that will be true. For the person in heaven one day, you will never be able to look at God and say, I did this. And for the person in hell, they'll never be able to look at God and say, you did this. That is the absolute picture. So the question is not how good do you have to be to earn God's favor. The only question is do you realize you are so bad that you can never save yourself? And it is through our weakness, it's through our brokenness that God draws near to us. Or let me put it this way. You don't have to be a shepherd in order to be saved, but you do have to have the heart of one. Let me say that again. You don't have to be a shepherd to be saved, but you do have to have the heart of one. And what I mean by that is this. The shepherds knew exactly who they were. They were despised. They were separated from God. They were the least likely to ever get a message from God. And yet, by the grace of God, they were chosen. They were given the incredible message. They responded by faith. And the rest is redemptive history. And here's the problem for us. We often refuse to see ourselves for who we really are before a holy God. We refuse to see ourselves in our sin before a holy God. In fact, I love the words of John Piper who said, Christmas is an indictment before it becomes a delight. So before Christmas becomes a delight, something we celebrate, it is first an indictment, meaning that we are so bad, so wicked, so dead in our sins that God had to send a Savior for us. That we are in need of something. We're in need of a Savior. And here's the reality. Because God is holy, because God is righteous, because God is infinitely honorable and worthy. One sin against God is an infinite offense and dishonor to him, deserving of divine, infinite punishment. Think about Genesis 2 and 3. So just think about Genesis 2 and 3, the story of Adam and Eve. I remind you that it was just one sin that led to the curse of God that affects the entire world today. It was one sin. So taking a bite of a fruit in disobedience to God. One sin, and we have effects all throughout the world. World wars, holocausts, cancer, disease, tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, terrorism, pain, suffering, all of these things that we think about, all because of one sin. Romans 5 says this, one sin brought condemnation into this world. One sin. And here's the wow moment. In this room, we have committed thousands upon thousands of sins. We have committed thousands upon thousands, and we are deserving in our sin of infinite punishment. And here's the reality. We don't normally choose to see ourselves that way. In fact, we don't like to see ourselves that way. We would rather just see ourselves as good people who make a few mistakes along the way. But that is not the way the Bible paints the picture. We are bad people who cannot save ourselves. And until we see ourselves as sinners, we will never see our need for a Savior. And it's sad that most people present the gospel today and they say this, Don't you want to go to heaven? Well, who in the world would want to go to hell? Listen, I don't look at my kids when they say, please don't punish me and go, man, 
you've never been godlier than you are right now. It is not godly that you don't want to be punished. That's not a godly thing. That's a selfish thing. Nobody wants to be punished. So we don't look at people just because they don't want to be punished and go, well, they must be saved because they don't want to go to hell. Instead, we, that's the picture we paint. Don't you want to get a hell-free card? Well, here you go. It's yours. Instead of painting the picture that God paints, that we are broken and sinful and we cannot save ourselves therefore our only hope is to call upon and turn to and to understand the drawing of the holy spirit to a savior of sinners which is our only hope see fear exists because we are separated from god in fact let me say this i don't think lost people are fearful enough lost people should be more fearful than they are but let me also say this to the believer today. Our fear is magnified in our lives when we are out of fellowship with God. So when, when we stop reading the word, when we stop praying, when we stop seeking the Lord, let me tell you what happens. Our fears magnify. And so one of two things is true right now for you as a child of God in this room. Either you have taken the fears of your life and you have placed your fears before, before God, between you and God, and all you can focus on is that fear. And that fear gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And before long, you can't even see God. In fact, before long, that fear has become your God. It's all you think about. It's all you care about. It's all you can even, um, all you can even process. That fear, that fear, that fear in your life. And there are some in this room, that is you right now. All you can see is fear. Or you have chosen to take this word and the God of this word, and place that God between you and your fear. And you meditate upon him. You trust him. You seek him. You lean upon him, and he gets bigger and bigger, and he is magnified and magnified and magnified, and as he is magnified, then you find yourself going, what fear? There is so much for me to be fearful of, and yet I have a peace from him that surpasses all understanding i have no idea why i have the peace i have right now yet it is here oh that that would be true of us so fear exists because we are separated from god and then the last truth number three fear is expelled because we have a savior who is god so fear is expelled because we have a savior who is god we're going to get a little bit ahead of ourselves because we're going to actually come to this part of the scripture on christmas eve but we're going to hit a little bit now so just think about this. We have a Savior who is God, who expels our fears. Just look again at verses 10 and 11. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. What's the good news of great joy? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, so a heavenly army praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. So the, these Bethlehem shepherds, they were afraid of the holy angels. That is understandable. They had every reason to be afraid. Holy glory naturally strikes terror in the hearts of sinful people. So holy glory strikes terror in the hearts of sinful people. Yet that wonderful night, the herald angel, get this, proclaimed the beginning of the end of our terror of God's holiness. 
In fact, more than that, it was the beginning of the end of all of our worldly and unhealthy fears. And that is what the angels are announcing that night. And let me explain. There is one purpose why Jesus would come to the earth to take on flesh in the first place. And it was to unite a sinful people to a holy God. Becoming the only way in which we are able to approach or approach a holy God. So God chose the shepherds as the first to receive the good news to show us that there is no one too broken or too insignificant for the kingdom. God also, some theologians believe that God chose the shepherds because it is possible that these shepherds on that night were actually guarding and caring for the sheep that were going to be offered as Passover sacrifices um, a few months from that moment. So these shepherds might have been the shepherds that were guarding the Passover lambs. They knew and understood the sacrifices of, of what they were doing and what they were keeping. And to them, the angel of the Lord came and said, Hey, the Passover lamb of God has come as your Savior. Go to him. And they dropped everything and they obeyed in a beautiful, amazing way. In fact, in that moment, they understood what I pray we understand today. Jesus is the only Savior of sinners in the world. He's the only Savior of sinners in the world. And I know that we live in a world where we are being taught that whatever way you want to follow God is good. You can follow God whatever way you want to. God is likened um, to a mountain. And we are told that there are many ways up, that there are many ways to get to God. And as long as you're sincere, all sincere roads lead to God. That is what we are taught. That they all end up at the same place. But let me just be the bearer of bad news. Unfortunately, that is not what the Bible tells us. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that there is only one way to salvation, and his name is Jesus. It, in fact, think about it like this. If, I, if you invited me today out on your boat, so maybe you have a boat and you invite me, and I come and I can't swim, and for some reason I don't have a, um, a life jacket or flotation device on me, and I fall overboard. And in that moment, because I can't swim, I am not swimming, I am drowning. And on that boat, you have two things that you can grab a hold of, a flotation device or an anchor. So imagine yourself grabbing an anchor and a flotation device. And as I come up, you go, which one do you want? <laughs> just imagine that. So just, and, and think of me in that moment as I come up and I see you holding a flotation device and an anchor saying, it doesn't matter which one you throw, they will all lead to the same place. Now here's the deal. There would be nothing mean or hateful or closed-minded about me saying in that moment that an anchor can't save me. It, you, I know some of you are thinking right now, well, if you grab the anchor, maybe you can anchor sink. Just understand that. So you can't swim. I know some of you are thinking, I, I see it in your mind. You're going, well, just maybe. I, I'll, I'll never forget, we took a, a youth trip um, when I was a uh, youth pastor, and uh, me and Misty were in the lifeguard stand. We were looking over people, and all of a sudden, we saw a kid that we knew couldn't swim. He was out about this high with all the other kids, and we called him. You know, I went running like, like Baywatch. It was a beautiful thing. Wish you could have seen it. And I called him up, and he came running out of the water. I said, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think long and hard about this. Can you swim? And he said, no, but I can hold my breath for a long time. <laughs> 
And some of you are thinking that right now. I can hold my breath for a long time, but there is only one way to salvation in that moment. There's got to be something else that holds you up. And this is where we get to celebrate that Jesus has come to the earth to be our Savior. And here's what amazes me is that we talk about salvation in a physical sense, but we, we very seldom talk about salvation in a spiritual sense. That we understand salvation from the physical. Or put it this way, if someone were drowning, such as me in the boat, my immediate need is not swimming lessons. So you on the boat, don't, don't be saying, hey, I'm on the phone right now with a YMCA. I got you signed up tomorrow for swimming lessons. You're going to be okay. No, in that moment, I don't need swimming lessons. I need to be saved. Or if someone is choking on food, you don't say, hey, man, you need a good um, food etiquette class. I'm going to sign you up for an etiquette class so you can learn how to chew and not swallow it whole. I think it would be very helpful for you. Or if someone is in a life-threatening car accident, you don't show up at the hospital saying, hey, man, you need driver's ed. And in all of those moments, it would be quite insensitive for you to do that in those moments. In all of those moments, what they need is to be saved and to be rescued. And here's the truth today. For, us, for those of us in this room who are in Christ, we have been saved and we have been rescued. In fact, what we are told is that God has done the impossible for us. And what I mean by that is this. In Matthew 19, verse 26, Jesus told the disciples... Speaking of salvation, he says, what's impossible with you is possible with God. So Jesus says very clearly, it's impossible for us to save ourselves. We can't do anything to bring salvation to ourselves. It's impossible. You can't earn it. I can't earn it. There's not enough good things we can do. We can't walk enough elderly women across the streets to earn salvation. It's impossible with us, but praise God, it's possible with him. And here's the truth. If God has done the ultimate impossible for us in saving us, then we can trust God with every other inferior impossibility in our lives. That is the point this morning. Because he has done the greater for us, we can trust him with the inferior fears in our lives. Therefore, brothers and sisters, they fear not because God is with you. Fear not because God is your God. Fear not because God will strengthen you. Fear not because God will help you. Fear not because God will support you and he will uphold you with his mighty right hand. The ground of our fearlessness is this. It is God. He is the one that drives out fear. In fact, we are told in 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. Jesus has cast out fear. Not all fear. He has replaced it with a holy fear that we should have of, of a holy God. But let me end this way with the words of Pastor Paul Tripp. Please hear these words because I think they're, they're so, they speak so well into where we are today in today's world. He says, in a world that's held in such deep darkness where the light of truth often seems more of a flicker than a flame, in a world where deceit Dishonesty and foolishness divert and distort the lives of so many. In times when a myriad of voices say so much about so many things, where confusion seems readily available and clarity seems hard to find, in a world where opinions rise to a place where only truth should be, and every voice seems to get an equal hearing in the constant noise of 10,000 contradictory voices, 
It's a wonderful and amazing thing to be able to say with absolute confidence, I am not afraid. And then he says this, I am not afraid, but it's not because I am strong or wise. I am not afraid, but it's not because I have power or position. I am not afraid, but it's not because I have health or wealth. I am not afraid, but it's not because my circumstances or relationships are easy. I am not afraid for one glorious reason. Hear this. I am the Lord's and he is mine. I am the Lord's and he is mine. Then he says this. In the darkness of this fallen world, I no longer walk in the night. But I have been given the light of life. I am not afraid because light lives in me. This one amazing reality gives me rest. I have been rescued from darkness and transported into the light. Therefore, I am not afraid. This morning, if you are in this place of worship and you do not know Jesus, you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, let me say this, you're probably not as fearful as you should be. You should be very, very fearful. Because it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God who will judge sin. So in that moment, I pray to you, if, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart right now, that you would turn from trusting in yourself, you would turn from your sin, and you would turn to Jesus Christ alone. Trust Him alone as your Savior and Lord. As the Holy Spirit draws you to Him, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But let me say this today to the to Christians all across this room. Are you in this moment? Have you walked into this room today with your fears being between you and God to where all you see, all you focus on, all you can think about, all you can talk about are all those things to where God is an afterthought. God has become secondary to your fears. If that is you today, I pray by the grace of God that you would ask God to take his rightful place in your life. And as you repent of focusing on those things, that you would allow God to take his rightful place and Ask God to magnify himself in your life, in the midst of your fears, in the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of all the things that you're going through. Ask God to increase. And ask God to allow you and all of the things that you care about and worry about to decrease. And you're going to see a difference that's going to happen in your life. And you're going to hear God in a fresh and new way saying, I have taken care of the greatest impossibility of your life. You can trust me with all the other ones. Therefore, do not be I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand this morning. I'm going to ask you musicians to come forward as we enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we say whatever it is that God is telling you to do, may you do it. If God is calling you to come down front and kneel and pray, that you would do it. If God is calling you to seek someone else for prayer, that you would do that. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do, do it today. And let's pray together. Father, we do approach you with humility approach you, God, understanding who we are and understanding who you are, that we are nothing, God, you are everything. And there is absolutely nothing that we could do to earn or deserve our salvation. God, you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And you have taken away the greatest impossibility of our lives by which we can say that we are saved and that we are yours. And if you have done that, God, with our greatest impossibility, Lord, we can trust you in the midst of all of our inferior impossibilities. Lord, we can trust you in the midst of all of our inferior fears. 
that if you can save us from our sin, if you can bring us from death to life, God, you can overcome health concerns, relationship issues, financial situations, job situations, uncertainties and worries in this world. Things that we wish we could change, but we can't. People that we wish we could change, but we can't. And it seems impossible because it is impossible to us. But God, if we can trust you with the greater impossibility that you have saved us, we can trust you with all of those things. God, help us to trust you with those things even now. In Jesus' name, amen.